Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Angelina Fielding, the author of Rough Diamond The Life of Colonel William Stephen Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's Forgotten Son. She's an independent historian and artist who is at work on paintings of George Washington. Ms. Fielding, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Evan. It's great to be here. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. There almost isn't any doubt that Alexander Hamilton is one of the most influential people in American history and that his name is one of the most famous. He's on our money. He's the subject of this generation's most famous Broadway show. Unfortunately, he's also well known for the way he was killed, for the way he died. But who are the people who lived in the shadows of people that big? The siblings of presidents, the next door neighbors of senators, or perhaps the sons of founding fathers? What do their inherent connections to history do to their own lives? What influence do they have, does that have over their own lives? What is it like to be so intimately connected to someone like Alexander Hamilton? So, Angelina, when and why did you start asking that question about Colonel William Stephen Hamilton? Thank you, Evan. Uh, so actually, my search began with uh, when I was working for my senior paper in school. Uh, I was actually working on the relationship between Alexander Hamilton and his mother. And I was uh, studying the dynamics between the two. And I decided to go dig further. And so my search led me through generations uh, of the Hamilton family. And I ended up with Colonel Hamilton, that's William Stephen Hamilton, because I came across one of uh, a photograph from a painting, and there seemed to be a lot of uh, confusion about this one particular photograph. In fact, if you go online even now, uh, there are some sites that will say this photograph is that of Philip Hamilton, the eldest son who also died in the duel. Uh, and there are some sites, few, that will uh, note William Stephen Hamilton uh, as someone who's in the photograph. So this naturally drew my curiosity and I just uh, thought that, well, there's no way possible that this one painting could be of both the sons. Um, so I started looking more deeper into it and it, it actually, I ended up with that senior paper, but it took me off of that and I spent the next, um, a little over a decade of my life researching William Stephen Hamilton and trying to find out about him. One of the things that I'm always amazed by is the length of time it takes to research a book. And one of the things our guests on this show have said frequently is how long and how diligent you have to be in order to develop the information you need to make an argument and then turn that argument into a book. So when you reflect on those 10 years, I didn't have this written down, but I want to ask, was that time well spent? Oh my gosh. Uh, so Evan, I definitely have to say it was time very well spent, but it had a lot of challenges, lots and lots of challenges. Um, for one, I did not have a lot of primary source materials left by the individual that I was working on. Uh, that was like the biggest challenge of all. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, even in the publishing industry, trying to convince publishers to spend money and time and invest in a book that is not necessarily based on someone who's prominent um, can be tricky business. Uh, fortunately for me, Indiana University Press uh, took a chance on me and allowed me to publish it, but it took me, as I said, over a decade to get to that point. And it was, you know, those 10 years were there were some moments that were very, very um, overwhelming. 
to be quite honest with you, very challenging many times that I just would look at his photograph and say, what is your problem? Why could you just have left me a journal at least to work with, you know, something. Uh, there was nothing. There was just literally a handful of letters personally written by him. And then half of them were business letters, you know, so it really didn't give me a lot to work with. But fortunately, as I continued with the research, I came across uh, things that his contemporaries had left behind that were very, very tremendously helpful. And just briefly, where are those letters uh, and documents found? Where did you so, find them? Sure. So most of the material connected with Colonel William Stephen Hamilton is at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Um, they hold, uh, I would say, probably 95% of whatever is related to him. And there might be, sorry, there might be some at Columbia U. Uh, gotcha. Just a couple of things. Yes. Uh, all right. So let's get into the, some of the meat here. Alexander and Eliza Hamilton. We, you know, we we both know uh, plenty about them now. Everyone knows yeah. about them now because of the great Broadway show. But they had eight sons between 1782 and 1802. Um, in 1797, William, the subject of this book, number six, the sixth out of eight, was born. Um, when his dad was between 38 and 40. Of course, there's some dispute about when Alexander Hamilton was born. But um, that means that William was only seven years old when his famous dad was killed. Um, I, I'm sure you've done this. I did it. Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton is 731 pages, and William is only mentioned on four of those pa pages. Yes. And the only mention of any substance beyond the fact that he was born was that he witnessed his dad's funeral and cried during it. What do we know about that scene and the impact that watching his father's funeral had on such a young seven-year-old child? Okay, so that's a great question. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of primary source materials, particularly, uh, it, I'm going to speak specifically to Stephen, William Stephen Hamilton. Um, but yes, Ron Charnow's biography by far is one of the most important uh, books to have come out on Alexander Hamilton. There are a few others I can think of, Richard Brookheiser, Thomas Flexner, and so on and so forth. Um, but what I found, and in fact, I was in touch with uh, Mr. Chernow also, who was very generous with his support. Initially, as I was researching, uh, mind you, my, my research predates the Hamilton musical. So I was already working on William Stephen Hamilton way before, you know, the Hamilton musical came out and just blew everything open. <laughs> um, so as I'm researching, and because that's one of the questions I always get asked, oh, did you just write this book because of the musical? No, in fact, I spent a lot of my time for the, as I mentioned before, over a decade, you know, just trying to find information about this one person. Um, so going back to your question, uh, we don't know exactly what happened. Obviously, we were not there on the scene. Um, Mr. Chernow does a great job of trying to explain it as best as he could, but of course, his biography was not, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton was the focus of his biography, not William Stephen Hamilton. And in fact, being as young as he was, there's really not a lot of material even I could uh, bring about. I, I found some information about his early years, all the way until he goes to West Point, and then most of the book concentrates on his life in the Midwest. So it's very difficult to, uh, you know, draw together a perfect scene or perfect understanding of what was happening. And I'm by no means a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but you can, you know, you can kind of rely on your own childhood experiences. This is what I did in another interview when someone asked me that question is that, you can kind of gauge by your own experience or other people's experiences when they were children, you know, what they saw, what they may have felt, what they may have experienced, how they may have reacted. So, I mean, I cannot say yes, without a shadow of doubt, I know that he sniffled or whatever, but I can definitely say that that scene must have definitely impacted his uh, psyche at some level, because we will see this as he gets older. And you argue that William is a good focus for a book because his lifespan, which was from 1797, not to give away the ending, but he died at about 53 years old. It went from 1797 to 1850. And you argue that it's a good focus for a book because it covered so many big events in our nation's early growth. Um, and in fact, you say that understanding 
a regular old fellow like Colonel William Stephen Hamilton is just as important as understanding a big old fellow like Alexander Hamilton. Absolutely, Evan. That is something that I believe in. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, the Midwest is considered flyover country. We just like, you know, okay, it's there. And where <laughs> do you some... live? I'm currently in Maryland, but okay, I, so I was in Indiana. Okay. Yes, uh, I, that's where I'm just visiting right now. <laughs> this is back home. So, um, but we're just you know, it's, it's just, mid, the Midwest is just there. There are some, obviously there are some uh, major cities like Chicago and so on and so forth. But for the most part, it's, it's just a very laid back kind of uh, place. And as I mentioned, I'm currently in Maryland and I come from the Metro DC area. So that's home for me. So to have relocated to the Midwest, it's a huge difference um, between the two kinds of places. We're still in America, but it's a different kind of setting. So what I found was uh, that a lot of times the history of the people that were there, the pioneers, for instance, we have a lot of um, books out there, even movies and, you know, it's in the culture, we see it, um, the, there's information about the pioneers, their journey, their life, and so on and so forth. And I just thought that, um, you know, we don't always have to look at great men or women to get a sense of what was happening. We can even look at just the average person and get a sense of the time, perhaps even more so, because you're looking down to the nitty gritty of what an average person's life is like during that period, rather than what an intellectual is doing in his life or what's going on with someone who's really famous. So I wanted to really um, zero in on that, and I hope I did in my book. What did you discover about the way the story of America has been told in the early 19th century? Uh, well, like I said before, I definitely see there's a lot of books out there, um, and we're talking about early 19th century, not you know not during the Civil War and whatnot. Once Lincoln comes into prominence. But uh, even towards the beginning of Lincoln's life, you know, when he's young and he's in Indiana, in fact, he's the, he's the subject of my second book that I'm working on right now. Um, but he, even until his time, his early years, where we do have information, but it's not as extensive. For example, uh, not to go away from the topic, but I think it kind of connects. In Lincoln's time, his youth, um, he spent, you know, he was born in Kentucky, and then he moved over into Indiana, and then he went uh, to Illinois from thereafter. And so Illinois is where we pick up once he's uh, become a lawyer, and we start digging into that part of his life. There's so much information. You will see that in many books, uh, even when they start writing about his uh, presidency and the Civil War and so on and so forth. But if you look further back, if you look at his life, for example, in Indiana, there's hardly anything there. That's because, again, we get stuck in the, um, between not having enough, enough information in, in terms of primary source materials that you can use to actually draw out a person and what they were about, who they were, how they were living, and so on and so forth. So it's challenging. One of the things that you argue in the book is that the fame of somebody like an Alexander Hamilton can obscure their private life. And that's kind of, it seems ironic, I guess, because you think someone's so famous, we know everything about them, but you argue that that fame makes it difficult to know the person at a personal and private level. And you do say that most of the children of the founding fathers left very little impact beyond John Quincy Adams, who of course became president um, himself. So just based on that theory that you have, what do we know about and what did you discover about the kind of parent that Alexander Hamilton was? Okay, so yes, um, you know, and we know what we know about John Quincy Adams is because he ended up becoming famous himself. In fact, you know, he was right alongside with his father during the revolutionary period. So, uh, but unfortunately that's not the case with every child of a famous uh, founding father or even for that matter, even today, any famous personality. Uh, what I found is that um, Alexander Hamilton was a devoted father. He was a doting father. He loved his children. 
he, for example, with William Stephen Hamilton, he used to call him his little Arab. And uh, the reason he did that is because uh, William had a tendency of uh, being outside all the time. He loved the outdoors. He was an outdoorsman. He was, when he got into the frontier, he became what we would call the frontiersman. He just loved nature. He loved being outside. In fact, he loved that so much more and preferred it so much more than the business suits that his father wore. <laughs> he just did not want to dress up and have, you know, just be, even in business meetings, if he could have helped it, he would have shown up barefooted with his, you know, frontiersman clothing or whatever. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that he was called his, in fact, he says his little Arab. That's what Alexander Hamilton said. And, um, you know, he was very close to his daughter. He loved his daughter, who unfortunately ended up becoming mad after the death of his first son. Uh, but he would play the piano with her. He would, uh, he had ordered some birds for her because, you know, she loved birds. So this is, this is giving me the impression that this is a father who clearly loves his children. He may not have had a lot of time to spend with them, obviously, because of his uh, professional life. Um, and public life. But nonetheless, he was a devoted father. He loved his children. He taught him many, uh, taught them many things. Uh, there's a scene where I mentioned this in my book, where um, Elizabeth Eliza Hamilton, his wife, is up in the morning, they're all sitting and she's putting butter on the bread and giving it to her children as breakfast and they eat it and then they go off to study. So these are moments that we may or may not see in other books that are talking about, you know, the politics and they're talking about, um, you know, business or what's going on as far as the war or economy and these things. If it's a great book, like with Mr. Chernow's, of course, we'll see glimpses of this, but I really wanted that to come out as much as possible. Talk about uh, Colonel William Stephen Hamilton's upbringing and his, um, uh, his path to the military academy. What kind of person uh, is growing up here and um, why did he become interested in going to the military academy? Okay, so Evan, unfortunately, this is the part of his life that were, you know, there's a lot of gaps. What I was able to conclude is, uh, obviously his father was in, you know, served in the Revolutionary War. His brothers went to West Point. So there's this tendency of, you know, and especially at that time period, typically sons would enlist in the military or something to that uh, effect. And so here we have William Stephen Hamilton, whose father at this point is gone. And if we know anything of that history, we know that there wasn't a lot of money left behind where he could inherit and, you know, just be rich. Uh, from what his father left him. Uh, so he kind of had to fend for himself. Um, and one way to do that was to join the military academy at West Point. And he tried that. Unfortunately, he did not complete his uh, program and he left early. And then he goes out into the frontier. Why did he stop? Why did he, why did he not come back? He supposedly had left and he was supposed to come back, but he never did. Why is that? We don't really know because the records were destroyed in a fire at West Point. So there's no way to kind of find out what was he doing? What was this education like? How well did he do or poorly did he do? We just know that he was there and then he left and went how, to the frontier. How does his going to the frontier mirror what was happening in the rest of American society, I guess in that 1810s period? Mm -hmm. So we know there's the war of 1812 and um, you know, there's, the East Coast is obviously, there's not a lot of space. The population has increased and there's money issues and so on and so forth. So at, this is the time period, this early 19th century time period. I was talking about Lincoln earlier too. A lot of young men in particular are coming up and they're no longer living the life like 
their predecessors where, okay, you know, you're born and raised in a farm and you grow up and you just are with the family and you take over the farm, your parents are getting older and so on and so forth. Now we're coming into what I call is the new American mindset, which to this day we carry, which is that you, you're more entrepreneur types. You want to go out there and conquer the world. You want to have your own thing, your own land, your own business, your own family. You want, you're sort of detaching yourself from the, you know, the, the main family and main farm or whatever the occupation may have been. So we see a lot of young men in particular moving towards the frontier, including William Hamilton and including Abraham Lincoln. We see these men moving into the frontier to make, you know, eke out a living for themselves. Briefly, what were his siblings up to? Uh, I know one of them died relatively young at um, because of a duel, like father, like son. Obviously, yes. psychology works in very strange ways sometimes, um, particularly between fathers and sons. Uh, how? Uh, what? What were his siblings up to? And when I looked it up on Wikipedia, real quick, some of those siblings lived a very, very long time, like yes. Eliza did. Yes, and, and Philip, for instance, the youngest one, not the eldest, the youngest one did. Uh, so briefly, uh, I think a couple of the brothers went into uh, serving in the Jackson administration, uh, which William Hamilton just absolutely abhorred that idea. Uh, so he was quite perfectly happy being in the Midwest and not being involved in that. Um, and then uh, I believe Philip, the youngest, I mentioned him again. He, he, he was a soft-hearted gentleman, and he kind of you know, took after his mother in the sense of helping out the orphanage and whatnot that she had started, I believe. Um, the one sister, the eldest sister, Angelica, as I mentioned before, she unfortunately became mad. And then the other sister was Eliza was actually very close to William Stephen and they were very, very close. They bonded very well. Um, and she unfortunately also died down the road, but um, didn't live quite as long as, uh, you know, the youngest sibling. Um, but yes, they were very close and uh, Eliza did get married. They did come into the Midwest. She was with her brother, um, but I think the intention was after her husband died, uh, Sydney Holly, who she married, and after he died, the plan was for her to come back to the Midwest and live with his, uh, I'm sorry, live with her brother um, in Wisconsin, but that did not pan out, unfortunately. Like lots of kids of politicians, it's easy to wind up in politics. They have a golden name. Uh, it's an unmistakable name. Very often, certainly the Bush family comes to mind, and I'm not just talking about uh, George W. Bush. I mean, George H. W. Bush has yes. a number of um, children and uh, nephews and what, what have you who go into politics or went into politics and are still trying to. And um, lots of families have that happen. Uh, so um, what was it like back then in terms of politicians, kids getting into politics? Was it sort of the same thing? And how does he start to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot? So um, Evan, I know as early as uh, when he moved to Illinois, uh, I'm sorry, when he moved to Missouri, because initially he moved to Missouri, St. Louis was the spot where you, if you were coming to the Midwest or the frontier at that time, the first spot you hit was St. Louis, you stayed there. And so from there, he's writing a letter to his brother, John Church, and probably, in fact, the only personal letter uh, that you can find, that I found. Um, where he talks about moving to Illinois and he's describing the soil of Illinois to his brother and he talks and makes a statement about the politics. In fact, I believe that quote is in the uh, front of my book. And so he already at this age, you know, 18, 19, 20, early 20s, he's, he's already thinking about politics. He has a sense of what he believes in, uh, what he thinks about what's going on in, in the country and, you know, with politics in general. Um, so we see that early in his life. It may have been even earlier, considering who his father was, but definitely you see it early in his life. Um, I would like to uh, mention, you said, you know, with his name or with that, that kind of famous name, you should be able to just take on politics and get involved and whatnot. He definitely had an interest in it, but did he have an easy time with it? I argue not. Uh, because when he's in the Midwest, this is the time that we have Jackson in office, and particularly in this part of the country, it's, it's a Jackson 
uh, you know, it's all Ed Jackson. So you have a lot of Jacksonians. You don't have a lot of Whigs. You don't have a lot of Hamiltonians, you know, and there are no Republicans at this point. So he's coming in and he's a staunch Whig. He, he takes after his father and, in my opinion, the only son who does. Uh, if you look at the uh, track record of his other brothers, they actually served in the Jackson administration, as I mentioned before. He absolutely refused to. He preferred to go to the frontier and make a living rather than go that way, which he certainly could have. As you mentioned, he could have gone in there and you know got another job under the administration of Jackson, but he didn't. He chose to come out to the frontier. But he comes in here, he gets involved in politics, but it's not an easy road by any means. Yet he does fairly well for himself, um, you know, and we see this in the book and I explained that. What did he focus on as a politician? Well, when he first starts in Illinois, he concentrates. In fact, he fought for a bill to, uh, you know, fix the roads because the roads at that time, although I would argue in the Midwest, maybe even now some roads uh, are maybe I was going to say, maybe he could come to Florida and work on it now. <laughs> we could use him today. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he, um, he has a law in place, which actually goes in effect uh, and, and lasts for a little bit and then it's canceled out. And that's to, you know, concentrate on, um, fixing the roads and building uh, decent highways and whatnot. So he's very interested in that uh, because when he first came in, he came in as a surveyor. So that's his background, very similar to Lincoln. They, you know, that surveying is a major way that young men can get in and get into the frontier. That's the, uh, and a lot of them do, including William Stephen. Uh, we saw, we know that his father was a top aide to George Washington in the military and Colonel William Stephen becomes an aide-de-camp to a commander. So uh, how did he wind up in the military and doing something very similar to what his own dad did? So um, he actually serves as a volunteer in the militia uh, and we have some, you, you know, uh, we have wars going on in the Midwest at that time. So we've got the Winnebago War, we've got the Black Hawk War, and uh, he participates in these wars. In the Black Hawk War, he serves as a spy for the army. Uh, but again, he's still volunteer militia. And um, before all of this, uh, if, if I may go back a little, um, in the 19th century, early 19th century, we have a visit from a, a Revolutionary War hero, and that's Marquis de Lafayette. When he comes and he's traveling the U.S., he comes through New York and whatnot. When he lands here in the Midwest, um, he is uh, brought together and he's, or rather William Stephen is presented to him um, by a letter uh, from Governor Coles. And uh, he's introduced as Alexander Hamilton's son. And um, by Lafayette's own admission, he resembles his father. He, is, he cries and he embraces him. It's a very emotional scene because we know the relationship between Lafayette and Hamilton, the father. And uh, he ends up, William Stephen ends up uh, basically being his aide-de-camp, if you will, or his translator or his secretary for the duration that he's here because he's very fluent in French that he learned himself, he's completely self-taught, that's William Stephen, and he learned French from his father's books and whatnot. So here he is translating for his father's friend at this stage, um, and they spend some time together. How um, does that experience go? Does he like it? Does he like being in the military? And, um, you know, how did he wind up heading even further west which is another pattern that we see throughout American history, even into the 20th century. Yes. So um, I believe he had a military instinct. Uh, you know, when we think about Alexander Hamilton and the letter that he wrote before he landed here, before, you know, the war took, uh, took off, he's yearning for something to happen, right? He wants, he wants to prove himself as a young, young man. And so William Stephen is no different. He has this desire to prove his ability. He's very much deeply in um, awe of his father, no doubt about it, because he applies whatever principles, mind you, he, his father died when he was seven. 
So it's not like Alexander, you know, Philip the Eldest had the benefit and advantage of having his parents in his life when he was older. Um, but William Stephen does not because his father is already gone. However, he has memories and he has things, I'm sure, that his mother told him and his siblings told him and other people told him about his father that he really holds close to his heart. I mentioned that earlier in the interview, you know, it, it, somehow that death scene does affect him because he carries it through his life. And whether you look at his politics, whether you look at his military career, whether you just see, see it in his physical appearance or whether you see the way that he stands up, against, he goes against the grain in everything that he does. If you look at politics, it would be easy, his own brother, again, I. I mentioned this over and over again, but his own brothers work for Jackson. He decides he wants to be awake and he is awake all the way through. You know, uh, if you look at, you can live in New York, you can use your name and you can do something. No, he decides he wants to. So he's always going against the grain. Um, and in my opinion, much like his father. I was just going to say this, that. Yes, yeah. he's he's got this sheer will and determination and just, you know, I'm going to do this my way kind of a thing. And so he carries that all the way to California. You mentioned California. This is what he's doing all the way to his death. This is how he lived. And he went there in 1849. And, I, and it, it's just amazing how his story really does, as you argue, mirror that first half of the 19th century. Yes. If you read the chapters on the journey itself, I've had people tell me they just never realized how grueling that journey was you know i mean we see it in documentaries movies and so on and so forth but i i i really wanted to highlight and you know it's funny because you know we're experiencing the COVID uh, pandemic and so on and so forth and here he is he's journeying he doesn't have the medical advantages that we do you know and they've got all kinds of diseases evan i mean you're oh. talking about cholera dysentery things that we probably haven't even heard of you know or we've forgotten about glad so, to have forgotten about them yeah exactly so he somehow manages to make it through and what what's really sad for me is that he goes through all of this gets there and barely lives the year out and then he's gone. And, you know, it's, it's such a shame, such a tragedy, in my opinion. Never got His the gold. Was, yeah. Never got the gold. Um, did you go? I'm sure you've been to his grave site. Um, Actually, believe it or not, I haven't been able to. Oh, so far. Wow. but it's on, it's on my bucket list. What, uh, what do you, um, what, what would you, when you get there one day, which you will, what are you going to look for and what are going to be the things that you kind of say to yourself as you, as you stand there in front of the graveside of this person who you've studied and spent 10 years learning about? So I can tell you, I've been to a lot of grave sites. I know that might sound morbid, but in my line of work, we often do that. I've been to Gettysburg and all kinds of you know places, which is a very humbling and sobering experience. And uh, you know, I remember growing up as a kid being scared of ghosts and whatnot. So you have this thing in your head. But now, uh, you know, doing the work that I do, I, I'm literally like I could be standing in front of uh, Lincoln's mother's grave. And I spent a lot of time just there, just soaking in the atmosphere because they've tried to keep it very similar to their time. So, um, in fact, when I write, I try to visit as many places as possible where my subject lived because it gives me a sense of their time and place when I'm writing. Why is it important to immerse yourself even in a place that they had never been, which is their own gravesite? Well, I guess they may have been there because it was on their property and things like yeah. that. But why is it important for a historian to immerse themselves um, in just the physical space that you essentially now occupy with your subject? So, you know, um, when we look at actors, for example, you've got good actors that, uh, I, I don't want to mention any names, but you've got good actors and then you've got great actors. Great actors, in my opinion, of course, this is all my opinion, great actors, in my opinion, are the ones that go the extra mile. They don't just stop after reading the script and do the role. They will actually go beyond reading the script and they'll, some of them, if, okay, I will mention the name. Daniel Day Lewis, for example. Okay. Yeah. That man will immerse himself in his character. So when you are watching him on film, you think that is who that subject looked like. So historians 
are the same way. We've got some good historians and we've got some great historians. I'm by no means am I saying I'm great. I'm just making a point that, you know, if you if you look at um, if you look at the work of David McCullough, for instance, you know, he he goes that extra step. He tries to present his information in a way that you're actually experiencing what's happening in his and it's all through his words. And his words are coming not just from his mind, but from the senses that he's collecting as he's doing his research. Um, so the same principles apply to me as much as possible. I try to be in that space because it really definitely makes a difference in my opinion. You can sense that standing in front of their grave, that's almost like coming to a completion. That's your, that's your closure with your subject that, okay, this is who I spent my life on in many cases and here he is and here she is or whatever the case may be and it just I don't know for me personally it's just a very um it's just a moment that needs to happen for that writer for that historian do you think you'll do like an uh, an epilogue or something like that <laughs> or a second ending after you uh, get a chance I've, to do that I will at least try to have an article out there or something to as my closure article because you know with the COVID it's been very difficult to yeah. travel as much but uh, I hope to visit. Uh, him. Two two real wrap two quick wrap up questions with Colonel Stephen okay. before I ask you a couple other things. Um, so just briefly, why didn't he get married? That's a mystery question, Evan. Right. <laughs> um, he just he just never married. My thinking is it's possible that maybe he just you know growing up he saw what happened with his mother uh, who absolutely loved her husband uh, but obviously alexander hamilton was long gone so maybe he just felt that not knowing the kind of life he was living he had no way of knowing that he would live you know 50 onwards uh, for all he knew he could, he may have been thinking i'll die at 25 you know because he's on the frontier and so on and so forth so it could be a lot of reasons why he decided, hey, it's better just to be single, live my life, and not ruin somebody else's life. Um, what was amazing is that Eliza outlived him. Eliza yes. lived to yes. 18... I mean, that's incredible. Eliza lived to 1854. Yes. Um, and it's interesting. I remember the opening of Chernow's book is that all these... Um, major politicians of the 1850s yes. at one point were gathering around her because they couldn't believe they were actually touching somebody who had played such a big role yeah. in the uh, revolution. Um, what was, do we know anything about how she reacted to her son's death in 1850, four years before she would pass on? Yes, actually, uh, Evan, I mentioned that in my book. In fact, uh, when William Stephen died, the siblings all of them agreed not to tell the mother because they were afraid that if she found out, she would definitely go. Um, that's because she was very close to her. In fact, many say she was the closest. Uh, he was her closest child to her. She loved him. She adored him. She's here in her 80s, Evan, traveling from New York down the Ohio River or coming to the Midwest to see her son, you know. I don't even know if people want to do that today with no. <laughs> the planes and whatnot. But right. here she is. She's doing this. She absolutely loved her son, and it would have broken her heart. Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind. So she never knew. So she never knew. Yes, she went to her grave not knowing that her son had passed away way ahead of her. Hmm. She never knew. You ask very clearly in the book, did he make life better or worse? Did Colonel William Stephen make life better or worse for the people who came after him for the subsequent generations? Obviously, historians are still arguing about uh, Alexander Hamilton on that, although yeah. some have come down on one specific side. But uh, what can you answer about that? Did Colonel William Stephen Hamilton make life better or worse for those who came after him? Well, you know, Evan, I think that's a, the reason I asked that question is because I wanted people who were reading my book to kind of make that decision for themselves. I wanted them to read this life story of a person who wasn't, you know, a huge public figure um, and the life that he lived and what he went through and kind of find if they relate to his life or they don't. I personally found myself relating to him on many different levels. He went through a lot of challenges. You know, you think, oh, he's Alexander Hamilton's son. He must have had it easy. Everything must have just, you know, given. No, it was quite contrary in many cases. Uh, in many cases for him, uh, 
the name Hamilton was not, uh, you know, a plus point. So I personally feel that Colonel William Stephen Hamilton stands out on his own as an example of his generation. And in my opinion, that generation is, you know, the beginning of the American man or woman or the mindset that we have today, that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, that go-getters that, you know, we're not afraid, we're going to go out there and conquer or we're going to uh, be productive or we're going to build something. Those types of ideas is what I, how I see him. And that's what we see today. We have done books on this show that are six, 700 pages. Oh, this book is a bit shorter than that. Um, did you yes. keep it relatively short? I think it's about 110 pages or so. Did you keep it short for a reason? Is that all you needed? Was there a strategy behind that? Or would you have made it longer if there were more primary sources? Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. <laughs> I would have had a longer, I would have probably had a 1200 page book if I right. had had if the primary have. source materials. Unfortunately, I did not. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, there's only a handful of uh, personal letters written by him and half of them are business letters. So he did not leave a lot of uh, information. And what I have, what helped me to put this book together is basically a contemporary accounts and, you know, some personal accounts from the, his siblings and things like that. Are some books, and I, well, let me just say, I love long books and I love picking up an 800 page biography. I really do. Um, the Robert Caro books on Lyndon Johnson are just mm -hmm. about my favorite. If not, well, they are my favorite. And mm -hmm. I've read the McCullough books and I've read the Chernow books and I've read the Doris Kearns books. Um, yes. But there is a lot of dispute in among historians, both popular historians and academic historians about the length of books. Um, certainly publishers have their preferences. Um, what do you think? Are some books too long? Well, um... I think there's definitely a requirement, uh, like if you're write, writing a scholarly book, you know, there's, there's a different set of challenges. If you're writing one for, as you said, a uh, popular book, there's a different set of uh, requirements. So uh, it just depends on what you're writing, what is your style, what do you, I personally, I mean, I have an academic background as a historian. so. People think that I should be writing scholarly books. In fact, that was one of the challenging things with this book, getting it published, is that some of the publishers didn't think it was scholarly enough. Some of them, I actually had, um, okay, here's a secret. One publisher who accused me of being in love with William Stephen Hamilton, and you know, you're just, and I thought, oh my gosh. So, what a, um, what a, what a sexist, disgusting comment to make. If yes, I may say. but it was made. You know, Evan, if you ever want to do an interview with me, aside from my book, like talking about all the nitty gritty details of the background scenes, then sure. There was a young but that, lady. But that's just the other an day. offensive comment. I mean, that's yes, just it is, offensive. And it was made to me, yes. And I said, oh my gosh, but, you know, how could you even say? I was so distraught, honestly. I was very distraught. I remember crying that day and saying, I try to be as, uh, you know, clear and unbiased in my writing. Uh, but I was presenting it. If you read it, you will see it's, it has, at least I've been told, it has a more storytelling element rather than a scholarly element. And that's what I was going for, because those are the kind of books I enjoy, despite the fact that I'm a scholar. Um, but yeah, that comment was made and there were others that were made, but it's, you know, it's, it's a long journey. That's why it took me as long as it did to publish this small little book. <laughs> it's not 800 pages, but it was a long journey for uh, Colonel Hamilton to come into being. That but just I, I was mentioning there was a young lady uh, just I think yesterday or day before on Twitter who um, I think is starting her bachelor's program in history and she said you know what there's something to the effect of what, what am I looking for and I told her basically you need to have true grit if you're going to make it as a historian you need to absolutely be passionately in love with history and not let anything you know if you're going in it for the money Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you I hope you make a lot make of money. Lot of, you know, I mean, maybe you can make professorship and have that. But if you're going independently, everything that I do is completely independent. There's no backing, uh, financial or otherwise. So it's very difficult. Um, but that's why I told her, you know, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Otherwise, it, it's not going to work. 
I'm sorry that someone said that to you. That uh, that no. is something that wouldn't even Thank have you, occurred Evan. to say. That is. I swear I would never share that, and here I am sharing it with the whole world. Thanks, Evan. <laughs> there you go. Um, Seven billion people. Hopefully, we'll download it, oh and the whole world God. can hear it. Um, <laughs> can we cut that part out? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we're leaving that in. Um, uh, tell us about you. Of all the people we've had on the show, eighty-three people now. You're, I think, the eighty-third or eighty-fourth, somewhere in there. Uh, you have one of the most interesting backgrounds without a question oh as uh, as as an artist and a historian i thought that was fascinating how do you find that art and history go together so evan i came to that conclusion after a long haul um i was struggling because i kept uh, you know i love painting i've loved that ever since i was a child not just painting but you know i make handmade journals things like that uh so I've always been a very creative individual. I've loved to paint ever since I was a little girl. And so that was always happening while life was going on. And then of course I went to college and I, uh, you know, I'm trained in uh, as a historian, but my passion was also with art. So that's all self-taught. I'm a self-taught artist. So I remember, um, I think it was back in 2013 or something and I was struggling. I was thinking, okay, you know, if I put out my paintings there, and then I'm also writing, people are going to get confused because I kept getting this feedback from people. Well, actually, I had one person say, what are you? Are you a historian or are you an artist? What are you? And I said, oh, my gosh. I, and I said, I'm both. And they said, you can't be both. You can't be both. You can either be one or the other. And I said, really? Well, um, Michelangelo was a lot more than just an artist. He was you a sculptor, be both. too. I don't understand. And a Da Vinci was people more say- than just People say very strange things to you. Yeah, so I'm thinking, and actually it really hurt me because I thought for a long time, I was like, oh my gosh, am I like confusing the public? Will they not want to buy my art or will they not want to buy my books because they think I'm just two different, you know, jack of all trades, uh, master of none kind of a thing. And then I thought, you know, well, what about the Renaissance masters? They mastered so many things. And even if you think about Thomas Jefferson, Okay, we think of him as a politician, but he was doing other things. Look at George Washington. He was doing other things. And, you know, these men are celebrated. There are women, too, that are celebrated for doing multiple things. You know, so why uh, should I think differently of myself and cut out my art or cut out my history or cut out my writing just because someone is saying, hey, you can't be doing all things. So I decided I'm going to do what I love to do. And I combined my two passions of history and art. So now you see you'll see early American uh, art in my paintings and you'll see early American history in my writings. And so I think I just love that. Excuse me, but we have presidents of the United States who play far too much golf and no (laughs) one ever demands that they give up their golf. Thank other you, than their Evan, political opponents. For saying that. Oh my gosh, I love you. Thank you for saying that. I mean, <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower played so much golf that the next president found golf cleat marks in the floorboards of the Oval Office. So there we let's go. all get a grip here. I'm going to play this clip. Like I'll put it on my website. So if anyone ever says, I'll just have you speaking for me. Thank you. I mean, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about the things people say to you. That is yes, wild. I have so um, many interesting comments. <laughs> What are you working on now? Tell us about Lincoln. Um, tell us about the artwork you're working on too. So start with your book on Lincoln. If say as much, only as you much as you want to say, and then I want to hear about your George Washington paintings, which you've announced on your website too. So Evan, you probably shouldn't have asked me that question. Be quick. No. I'm just kidding. Go <laughs> right. So um, actually, I have a little bit of a bad news, and I don't know where, how this is going to end up. Um, But I started researching Lincoln again. I'm working on his early years in Indiana when he was a young boy. And oh my gosh, I spent so much time, years researching, getting all my notes together, everything. So uh, earlier, I think I was, when we were just talking, uh, I told you that I had had a lot of things happen this past year. One of them uh, was that, you know, I went through some personal issues. And because of that, I'm here um, in my hometown, I guess I'm in Maryland. And when I was coming here, I shipped a box full of all my research notes, my books, my secondary. So yes, you know where I'm going. I shipped it out to myself from Indiana thinking, okay, while well, I'm recovering because, okay, I'll, I had surgery, which is why I'm here. I'm recovering with my family. And I thought, well, I won't be able to do much. So I'll just work on my manuscript. And um, well, unfortunately, I have not been able to do that because my entire box of research materials 
were gone. There, there's just, I don't know what happened. Uh, oh. A particular federal agency was the one I used. I wouldn't take any names to ship my items out to myself. And somehow that box got opened up. All my things were taken out. And two pairs of dirty shorts and a multivitamin bottle. That also a child's multivitamin bottle. You know, those gummy bears. That was put into the box and the, big, uh, the box was shipped out to me. So when I opened it, I was like, oh my gosh, where are all my books? Where's everything? And um, that was uh, almost two months ago. And I'm still going back and forth with them trying to find my oh, stuff so hoping. that I can we're, write my book. Please keep us updated on that. Oh my um, gosh. Tell us about your George Washington art. Okay. So that's the other thing. I, um, I was, uh, my plan was this year to just completely dedicate myself to painting portraits of Washington. I had actually studied, I was studying his space from all angles, you know, like all of the beautiful paintings by the greats and his, you know, death mask, everything, because I wanted to like memorize every single angle of his face. And that was going really well. But then of course, like I said, you know, I had the personal things happen. And so I had to put that on, on hold. Um, since I've been here, which it's been about a month now, uh, I've been waiting for my LinkedIn materials. Uh, in the meantime, with everything that's happening with Ukraine and Russia, uh, you know, there was a while ago, I think a couple of years ago, maybe I had written an article. Um, it was uh, the difference between a politician and a statesman. Uh, and because, you know, people use the two words simultaneously. And I thought there is a distinct difference between the two. And so when I was watching or hearing about the news and I thought, you know, it's my opinion, no one has to agree, but I find Zelensky uh, being very close to the statesman that I was talking about in my article, uh, you know, a patriot. Some can say he's making mistakes, whatever, but that, that was my opinion. So I decided I'm going to paint a portrait of him and uh, that's what I've been working on. It's hmm. coming along okay, I think. Looking we'll forward to seeing results. that. Make sure you, make sure you post that. Um, oh, well. Another thing I want to ask you about is handmade stationery. You make handmade stationery. Yeah. Why is that something that we still need? And even in today's day and age where we can write everything down on a computer and stick it into yes. a file somewhere, what is it about handmade stationery that makes you, the historian, go, ah, this is something we all need to have in our homes? Thanks, Seven. Uh, well, actually, you know, it's the history behind the material that I use. So when I'm making these handmade stationaries and, you know, journals, I'm trying to use paper, fabric, you know, textiles, everything, whatever I can think of, uh, old coupons and, you know, uh, museum tickets and things like that to bring it together in this journal. It's like a keepsake book of all the memories. There's so many things that we used to have, let's say, not to like, uh, date myself but you know 80s and 70s you know <laughs> things that we don't normally see we know about the 80s they we know about them. we know Unless about we go to like a thrift shop or something and they maybe come across something but you don't go and find these things in a regular store right you can't just nowadays i know they're trying they'll do it in clothing and things like that but i'm talking about the actual original pieces so my idea behind that was just to you know put together a journal where you can insert things that are meaningful to you that you enjoy that you love but you may not find it easily anymore they may be collections that you already have or they may be things that you find um so there's a place in the journal part is of course the writer in me you have to have some space where you can journal something about that object or just write or draw or paint or sketch. So that was the idea behind that. Incidentally, uh, as I was researching Lincoln, he too made handmade journals. So of course, you know, there's that. <laughs> and boy, was he, can you imagine in his time trying to find some paper to <sighs> sew together to make a journal? You had oh to gosh, make it. <laughs> you had to make it. A uh, couple quick ones here for you. Sure. Um, who would you do a book on today? that's in the same category as your rough diamond, as Colonel William Stephen Hamilton. Who's around today who you oh, think gosh. is in the same category who, could, who you would like to do a book on as someone who's growing up in the shadow of a major politician, like a president or a senator or a governor or something like that, or another famous person? Oh gosh, Evan, uh, you know, I, my mind is so stuck in the past. <laughs> that I don't even look at the contemporaries. Um, that would be, I would have to think about that. Right. <laughs> I'm so sorry, yeah. You can get back to us. Um, yes. if, if you could snap your fingers, how would you change the way history is researched and told? 
I think from my own personal experience, I would like to see um, the publishing industry and some of the people who are already in the business, you know, writers, authors, whatever, I would like to see them give a smaller fish a little bit of a chance, an opportunity. I actually was very fortunate, uh, and if I may mention this, Mr. Richard Brookheiser is a fantastic and phenomenal person. And I hope he doesn't hear this because he'll kill me. But no, he's such a humble person. He is so sweet. He helped me in so many ways, not by necessarily, okay, I'll take your stuff and give it to someone so it can get published, but just the encouragement and support that he provided. I can remember days that I was distraught for, from all of this. And he was just like, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. It's like a cheerleader for yeah. me, you know, um, he, just people like that, people who've been in the industry, it would be nice to see more of Richard Brookheiser's out there. I can tell I can tell you a story about Richard Brookheiser myself. Um, okay. When I was first getting involved in history Twitter and first discovering that there were all these ways to access or to interact with these people who whose books I read and I've read yes. hundreds and hundreds of them, Richard Brookheiser was one of the first people who I followed yes. and who followed me back and who I had discussions with. And so it is no stretch to say that he inspired me to keep going with my history habit and going from reading into discussing books online and now podcasting about it. So he thanks to Richard. Absolutely. Yes, Evan. He is the most humble person to, I say this all the time in all my circles, whatever small or big they are. He just, you know, because when you look, when you think about a person in his position, okay, nationally known, internationally known, he does not have to give me one second of his time, which is no doubt so valuable, right? But when I approached him, like just like you, I just reached out to him. And mind you, my entire uh, grad school, my bachelor's, everything, I was reading, his books are in all of my papers because I was always referencing him. Um, but, you know, I feel that a person like Richard Brookheiser is such a gem to people like us because, first of all, he doesn't have to give us the time of the day. And yet he does. Not only does he respond to you, but he may even on occasion check in and say, okay, you know, hey, what's going on with that? Or what happened with this? And when you speak about Twitter, every time if I'm doing something, he's always retweeting my stuff. He's, you know, his, his generosity is just unbelievable. He's not getting anything out of me or anyone else. You know, he's just doing it out of, because of who he is. And, and of course, I, I just want to interject. His wife is a beautiful person. But anyway, sorry, I had to say that in there. And but it's, yes. um, and it's uh, amazing to see that he's not the only one on history Twitter. Yes. And it, it's been a wonderful community and is really well, the best. Well, you are, for example. Well, that's, that's so, you know, nice. you, you put this tweet out and I was trying to pull your leg and you turn around and said, hey, you, I'll take you up on it. I'll read your book. We'll do this interview. So you, you didn't have to do that. You could just have you know, who am I? You could have just passed me by, but you did. Here you are spending your valuable time with me. So I truly appreciate that. That's, and I would like very... to see more of that, you know, because mm -hmm. there's so many people like me who are undiscovered or whatever, but we're doing good work and we just need, you know, I mean, I'm not kissing a canvas and selling it for a million dollars, but my work is worth something. And that ought to have some there ought to be someone who's saying, okay, let these people also have an opportunity. Well, three cheers to, to all that. Um, and we're thrilled <laughs> to have you on the show. And we, that's one of the things that I love doing um, on our show is having people um, as big and as famous as David Marinus and as Annette Gordon-Reed, who are both great friends of the show, um, and to having independent historians like you. And you're not the first we've had. We've had probably at least a half dozen independent historians and we have That's more terrific. scheduled. So we're very glad to have all, um, all stripes of historians on our show. Last question. You say that William is the quintessential American because by studying him, we can learn about ourselves. So what did you learn about yourself from researching Colonel William Stephen? Thank you, Evan, for that question. I learned that I am uh, motivated. I'm not a quitter. 
and uh, life has had lots of challenges for me, um, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to keep going, even if it's one step at a time and there are baby steps. Nonetheless, we must move forward. We must do, you know, whatever gifts that we have, we should use them to uh, be productive. And as I just mentioned with the whole, you know, give opportunities to others and help someone else. I try to do that in my own life. I mean, I may not be a big fish, but whatever I can, however it is, um, I think, you know, humanity is the end goal. And if you lose that because you're too busy or you're too rich or you're too powerful or you're whatever, um, then what is life after all, you know? So I, I'd like to say that, you know, keep, keep the heart, keep going, keep pushing forward. And I that's, say, uh, yeah, I saw that in uh, William Stephen. That's who he was. I can say without a doubt that this is one of the fav my favorite interviews we've ever done oh my on gosh. the show. Top one, Thank two or you, three. <laughs> uh, Angelina Fielding or AK Fielding, as it says on the cover of her book, the author of Rough Diamond, The Life of Colonel William Stephen Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's Forgotten Son. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Evan. And thank you to your audience for listening to me. Check out the book. Check out her website, trahanstreasures.com. She's on Twitter at AK Fielding. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, Conversations with America's Top Nonfiction Authors and Why Their Books Matter Right Now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.